Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 54. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them, how'd they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on? And what are their hopes for the future? This episode, I sit down with Kirsten Milks. Kirsten is a science teacher at Bloomington High School South in Bloomington, Indiana. Kirsten is also a senior fellow of the Knowles Teacher Initiative and is the editor-in-chief for outreach of the foundation's publication, Kaleidoscope. Kirsten's professional development work also includes working with the BSCS NABT AP Biology Leadership Academy and the Woodrow Wilson Annenberg Teaching Fellowship. Kirsten has been widely recognized for teaching excellence through awards including the NABT Outstanding New Biology Teacher Award in 2012, the 2014 Yale Educator Award, the 2017 Alumni Excellence in Education Award from Stanford's Graduate School of Education, and the 2018 NABT Kim Foglia Award. Before entering the classroom, Kirsten was a research scientist, having earned her PhD in biochemistry at Stanford. You can follow Kirsten on Twitter at Dr. Milks. Welcome, Kirsten. Oh, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking time out of your lunch hour during your first week of school. I, I appreciate this. No, so this is the first time I've been teaching. This is my eighth year of being in the classroom. And this is the first year where I know the things I'm supposed to do. <laughs> I don't always do them on time, but I the, the checklist is finally in my head in a way that feels really satisfying. So it's actually more peaceful. This is the most peaceful first week of school I've ever had. Wow, that's nice. I'm, uh, I'm waiting for the boat to rock. I'm yeah. <laughs> waiting and ready, but... yeah. Yeah, you're just waiting to be comfortable. I uh, We just had some switches. Um, so we're recording during your first week of school. And this, as I was telling you before we started recording, this will come out my first week of school. Okay. And, and we just actually had a big shakeup uh, where one of my teachers who I've taught honors biology with for years and years and years is actually going to become one of the deans in the school, which, oh. which meant that there's a shakeup and they're hiring a new teacher and they restructured. So I actually had thought they, I had a really tough schedule just from logistics, like getting physically from one room to another and that sort of stuff. And I had had that last, last year and my department said, all right, we're going to make sure that's better next year. And because <laughs> of the hiring of a new teacher and needing to shuffle people around, I'm actually going to have a worse logistical schedule next year. I literally, I told him, I was like, I was like, all right, just so you know, I'm just never going to be on time to these two periods because I, I literally am going to go from one wing of our high school to the other wing of the high school, back to the other wing of the high school in the last three periods of the day, every single day. Are, are you also pushing the cart? Uh, so, so sometimes I usually, I, I teach an alternative program. So usually I just carry a cart, but sometimes I'll be pushing a cart from one side of the building to another. Um, but I am now literally teaching in four rooms, um, Oh my! <laughs> in year twenty-three of my uh, teaching career, so like when people talk about it, so it's like it's one of those comical things. It's nothing. There's no malice. It literally, you know, best intentions, but. You know, sometimes these things happen and you just sort of roll with it. And as I've often said, I have really good colleagues and really good students. And so, like, I'm just going to be like, I can control what I can control and uh, <laughs> not going to get too bent out of shape. But I'm going to be exhausted, like, two, yeah. two weeks into school before I figured out, like, all the little tricks and logistics to make that manageable. Um I'm like already looking at the end of the day. I might just have to nap in the middle of the day <laughs> to get so that ready. That would be ni the nice thing about the rolly cot is you could just roll a cot in addition to all of your materials <laughs> yeah. from hallway to hallway. Yeah, so. I like a move you just made where you said, I don't have any malice towards my colleagues. Yeah. Because I think this, that that expression, I'm teaching in four, this is my 23rd year of teaching and my current challenge is that I'm going to be all over the building. Yeah. A lot of people transition into teacher bashing or colleague bashing or, or have ill will. And it's really neat that you just positioned yourself to be open about that challenge and yeah. the napping, open about the challenge <laughs> and the napping. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, as I said, I, I know, I know the people who set up the schedule and do all of those things. And like, this was not set up, set aside to like, you know, nobody is out to get me or anything like this. It's just, you know, we teach in a giant school and there's what, nine or 10 sections of honors biology. And, there's there's going to be some logistical challenges for everybody involved and we're just going to have to pull together and make it work so um 
And I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that, you know, I'm going to get slack. I'm not going to get, nobody's going to be standing at the door as I'm like trying to run from one to the other going, why are you a minute late? To, like, nobody's going to be on me about that. Uh, people are going to understand that there are, you know, I'm one human being and there's limitations. So, uh, and the kids, as I said, I, I've had, last year I had a fairly challenging scheduling and my kids were just awesome about it. Like they just, Aww, they just, kids are awesome. Yeah. They just rolled with it. So, all right. Well, I've now officially got my venting out about my, uh, my, <laughs> my new schedule and we this is not about me just venting so uh let's let's transition into uh talking about you as a teacher and um, i'm gonna start with the question i like to ask everybody which is how did you become a science teacher what sparked your transition from the lab into the classroom so i had worked in science settings as an undergraduate and as a researcher in a lab in europe and I was in my third year or so of my PhD at Stanford when I kind of looked around. It feels like a prairie dog kind of coming up and kind of looking around and surveying the landscape. Um, I love the intellectual work of science. I loved the problem-solving piece of science. Um, and the part that was missing for me was feeling more directly of service to people. So I, I really want, in my life, in all the different parts of my life, I really want to be helpful. And I knew the work I was doing way down the road might touch somebody who was a cancer patient. Mm -hmm. So the work I did at Stanford was um, trying to learn more about cell division by making a cell-free mitotic system. So to do that, we... Uh, took frog eggs and extracted their cytoplasm, the inside goo, mm -hmm. and in doing so could add DNA that then with some chemical help would do the same um, assembly of the protein ropes of the mitotic spindle of the things that connect the DNA to that apparatus um, as they do in the cell, but you can perturb it without a cell dying. Huh. Um, so I was, I, I was loving the work I was doing with my hands. Um, and, but the, the work I was doing with my heart, I guess, I wasn't getting enough feeling like I was directly useful to people. Sure, somebody might have taken my work down the road and incorporated it into cancer drug discoveries, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted, I, wanted to t I wanted to be more with people. My lab mates were awesome, but there were 10 of us, <laughs> and we were working individually on our things. Yeah. Um, and so I started to look at other things. I visited the Stanford Career Center. The School of Medicine also has a career center um, and hadn't, you know, was shown some positions that people with PhDs had had recently. Um, and I wish I could tell you that I had done a lot of measured thought about the classroom. <laughs> but what ended up happening is that I was bicycling to the person who is now my spouse's house with my spouse after school. Um, and he and I were biking along and I put my feet down on my bike and he came back around and said, are you okay? And I said, I am going to teach high school science. <laughs> and he looked at me and in that way that Teachers right now who have such students will understand my absolutely brilliant now spouse wailed, why would you do that? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I told my father who was still alive at the time. And when I told him, he said, kid, I was wondering when the violin player was coming back. And I said, what? And he said, in high school, you used to play the violin and you used to you know, um, write poetry, and you used to read voraciously. Um, and the thing that that you loved doing was doing a lot of different types of things. And I hadn't <laughs> realized that about myself. But one thing I love about my classroom job now is that I get to do a lot of different types of things in a way that um, is more interlaced, I suppose, than the things I was doing as a PhD scientist. Yeah. So anyway, I had this realization, and um, I was about halfway through, and I decided that I wanted to finish um, my project. I had um, a strong desire to kind of complete that story, and I'm really glad I did. Um, but I, I, I took an education class at night one semester, and I volunteered <laughs> with a yearly, you know, kids in science opportunity. But other than that, I really hadn't interfaced with students until my first day of student teaching. Oh. 
So and did, I was right. I yeah. was right. Right. Like <laughs> well, that's clearly, the cool thing. I, clearly, yeah, looking well, at what you've done over the last eight years, it's it's clear that you were right. But I, so I'm curious. So you're how does how do you get from being this research scientist at Stanford and working on your PhD to Bloomington, Indiana? Like I ah. like what's what's that path like? I've had some awesome in-laws who live an hour from here. Oh, okay. So we were out in California. My spouse is was two years behind me in the PhD program. And so I did my teaching credential for a year, and I taught for a year. Um, and that year was really – I've been thinking about this recently. That year was really important to who I am as a teacher because I was working at phenomenal Sequoia High School in mm-hmm. Redwood City, California. And my position was teaching biotechnology. Wow. So right out of the gate, my first job was hands-on, a very heterogeneous group of learners in lots of different senses of the word. Mm -hmm. And we all were going to do science together. And so I got that one year of um, a nudge towards many of the things that make my classroom here in the Midwest work so well. Um, and then we decided that we wanted to be closer to our family. And for us, um, uh, my spouse's family was here in Indiana. So here we are. So weird, weird connection. I remember going to a presentation by a teacher, a physics teacher at Sequoia High School, who was working on oh. something called brain candy, where they were doing like turn and talk work. And he was partnered with a Stanford graduate. So I got the feeling from from the presentation, and maybe this is just, you know, the anecdote of this one teacher, that um, there was a lot of, like, research being applied by teachers at Sequoia. Like, is that, yeah. is that fair? Well, or is so, that I mean, anecdotal from the interesting Well, one of the interesting parts about teaching biotechnology at that time, as opposed to being a member of the bio team or the chemistry team, is that I was physically secluded <laughs> and content-wise kind of by myself, too. Yeah. So um, I one thing that I did take from Sequoia that I still do, that many teachers at my high school also do now, is um, bell work for the beginning and end of class. Mm-hmm. So um, that was something that came out a bunch of research and work in Sequoia. Um, the organized binder system was what they <laughs> called it then. And I, I still use that piece in my teaching all the time. But the thing that was really important to me was the, the disposition. I'm really glad that Sequoia was the first school I worked at. A school like this would have been fine too. But just at Sequoia, people were so intentional about putting students first. Mm. And there was this understanding when then-principal Bonnie Hansen would say, take care of our lambs at a faculty <laughs> meeting. Nobody, nobody looked away. Yeah. And that, that's something – at our school, we, we have a lot of things we value, and I love the things we value. Um, but to have somebody say that explicitly to me early on as opposed to having to learn it through living in school culture was really important to me. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I, I I can I can sort of back that up by oftentimes I think back to my my second year of teaching where I taught in a school where um, I just felt it was a school that was really divided. There was like an adult culture and there was a student culture. And oh, interesting. I I was like I I, I walked around that year very confused because I didn't know what the adults were talking about. I mean, I was twenty three at the time, and <laughs> and they would put out rules and stuff like that, and I'd be like why are they doing that? The kids would ask me like, why is that a rule? And I'd be like, I can't talk to you about this because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why this is a rule. Um, but I do know that like having, and I, in my first school year that I taught, and unfortunately it was a very small school and they, they ended up cutting back on teachers. So they offered mm. me like a 20% teaching position my second year, which wasn't going to pay any bills. No. Um, but it was a, a very mentored environment where I got a lot of adults around me who, we're, we're very thoughtful about both the students and also me as a young teacher and sort of took care of me a lot, but also showed me the right way. And then I went to this other school where it was like, yep, this is just not the right spot for me to be in because I don't understand what's going on here. And I have said that if my first teaching job had been that and I that was the experience I had as, OK, this is what it's like to be an educator. I don't know that I would have made it. Um, I'm, I might have been like looking for, you know, opportunities to get back in academia, you know, getting a bench, you know, a lab bench job or working in a biotech company because um, having really positive 
discussions about students and mindfulness about the work you do with students is so important, uh, particularly when you're forming your ideas about what it's like to be in the classroom. And I think that I've been working a lot through the Knowles Teacher Initiative and my work with the journal um, Kaleidoscope. Is I've been thinking a lot about young career and middle career teachers mm-hmm. um, and what's useful to them. And I think that that business of you saying, you know, like my, not having ill will toward colleagues, but also saying, yeah, this system's output is that if I were a new teacher, I I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know how to how to work to become the teacher I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so oftentimes I think we engage as a society, we engage in teacher bashing and we engage in talking about the superstar teachers. And both of those don't show you all the systems that are in place. You know, my principal here at Bloomington High School South, Mark Fletcher, I did not understand, Mark, I hope you're listening, I did not understand (laughs) how much Mark made it possible for me to do my teaching until I had been at the school for five or six years. Mm. I mean, Mark is, the things that Mark does in the main office and that his colleagues in administration here do in the main office, um, let me be able to do the the stretchy, challenging, intellectual work that my students and I do in parallel. Um, and like the system is part of why all those things that you just described um, have happened for me. It's because I work in this environment where people have my back. Mm-hmm. And like that's a very valuable piece, I think, of um, of building a school culture for grownups. That's so. That's such a positive thing to to hear and to think about because I think, um, I don't know personally. I feel like my school administration is always in such flux and transition and filled with good people, but um, I feel like their jobs are so hard, and <laughs> the work that they do. Uh, the, the, I mean, like people ask me, they're like, they're like you know, for example, you know, the opportunity, you know, the dean job comes open or this other job comes open in leadership and people say, like, are you interested in that? I'm like, oh, God, no. I want to spend all my time with the kids. Like that's that's my reaction to 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 those types of openings, because I respect how hard they have to work in order to sort of create smooth paths for us to do things. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's a good way to put it. How hard you have to work to create new paths. To yeah. Do things. That's and, a really good positioning. I like that. And and the other thing that keep in mind is that like, and I've been teaching, you know, now getting ready for, for year 23, the, the career is like not the same at all. Like what right. teachers were doing, you know, really even 10 years ago, the, the expectation of what good teaching looked like 10 years ago and what good teaching looks like today are different. And that is another challenge on top of it. So if you're an administrator and you have these community expectations where all of these people went to school, so they in their mind know what school looked like for them when they went through school. And then you look at what teachers are trying to do in the building and you have to somehow make it so that people accept and understand that there is a transition and people are working on new things and the working on new things is a good thing, not a bad thing (laughs) and have to smooth those things out. That's, that's really, really challenging work and not all community members are going to be equally receptive to those points. You know, we live, my community is a college town. So Mm -hmm. Indiana university is here. Go Hoosiers. Mm -hmm. Um, But our, um, and our school community is, um, it looks very much like a cross-section of America. Mm-hmm. So we have um, folks who have had a very wide range of experiences who are coming to school to be students here. And you said that the job looks very different. Um, our principal shared some data on the numbers of times that our school is making calls to um, social protectorate, to child protectorate services here. It used to be, um, when Mark started, he said it used to be about once a week, and now we're looking at a little fewer than one a day. Wow. So with the same same number of kids, right? And that's great. It's really good, right? Because schools are the place where people have to come, right? Yeah, so it's their safe <laughs> and, spot. And the more that, right, and the more that, 
students feel comfortable opening up to teachers or sharing parts of their lives where some more help in their family or in their work life or whatever would be helpful, then, then we are doing our jobs. But yes, that is not at all what I thought school was when I was sitting in high school in the 1990s. Mm. Oh, all right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift us a little bit because this could get okay. very, this could get very heavy. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, although I love the frame the way you frame it. Um, it's such a you know I don't know that I've ever had somebody frame you know I I when you were talking about it I was also thinking about sort of the mental health services that we're having for our students and the number of hospitalizations and that sort of thing. And in the same way, we could frame that in a in a positive light that students are moving from suffering silently to now we're actually getting them help and we're, yeah. we're being advocates for their mental health. And um, I don't know that I've ever thought about it in those terms of there are some positives to these sometimes alarming statistics that we see um, of how the school is getting involved outside with these so kids in their, their lives. Before you shift us, something a lot of people don't know about me that I'm increasingly making public, so now seems as good a time as any, um, is that I'm a kid who grew up with some childhood trauma myself Mm -hmm. and some really unstable family times. Um, And I, a grown-up at my school, should have picked up on it earlier than they did. Mm -hmm. I mean, as sitting now, and, and this is no knock to my teachers, but sitting now in my classroom, I was... Like I was shedding, I was shedding signs that something was wrong. Um, and if intervention happened, me and my parents have both passed away, but if something, if intervention happened, I don't know anything about it. Yeah. So um, I feel really empowered to be a classroom teacher. I mean, you said, I, I can't imagine working as an administrator. The, my students are totally the fuel that gets me out of bed in the morning <laughs> to work for, to, to work for the common good. Yeah. Yeah. And they're awesome. Yeah. And anybody out there who's like, should I be a classroom teacher? I'm thinking about being a classroom teacher. The, the students are so amazing. Students are so amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, I, we could keep talking about it. As I, I, you're talking about that, I'm in the I, I'm in my um, letters of recommendation week. This is my week that I write my all my letters of recommendation for the school year because uh. I can't write them. So, like, I've been sort of bathing in the excellence of you know 20 of my students from last year um, mm. <laughs> this week because like literally, you know, how do you in a one page capture sort of the the amazingness and like the answer is you can't, but you can't, <laughs> you, can't, you, you can't, but like I do get to revisit. I have been revisiting um, several of my students uh, that, you know, many of them I had twice cause I had them in honors and then again, an AP um, I bet I've been revisiting my students this week <laughs> during the summer writing those letters and you're right. Um, they are the fuel. They're, they're, the, they're what yeah. drive you to, to do that work. Yeah. So um, one of the things that you have done, and I really view you as a pretty prolific writer, but uh, <laughs> I internet stock all of my guests and I was like reading articles and reading this and I got to read some really cool uh, science journal articles, which <laughs> really didn't help me for the interview, but I'm a nerd, so I got down those avenues. But uh, one of the things that you wrote um, in Indiana University's bio news article back in 2017 was you wrote this article, How Researchers Can Help oh, Teachers. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and for me, I found it really fascinating because like... I feel like you get to speak from authority in both of these cases um, because you were a researcher and you are a teacher. So it seemed like a really nice uh, tie-in. But I'm curious, how do you engage with current research and researchers with your students during the year? What does that look like for you as the former researcher now engaging with students? How do your kids get to you know, take a step into that world or view that world? Well, I will tell you, it is still very much a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the thing that changed the most for me once I started being contacted by researchers who wanted to collaborate with schools is that I really want my students in both AP Biology and also in my introductory Earth and Space Science class to be able to do science. I mm-hmm. want them to be doers of science in my classroom. And so oftentimes, uh, awesome, intelligent, compassionate people who are researchers want to come in and share with my students using the same ways of sharing that happen in their professional world, right? Mm -hmm. So that's 
um, a lecture, an hour lecture about what they do. Maybe it's uh, reading a paper um, and, uh, and sort of having the discourse be in your head with those ideas. Um, but actual practicing scientists are in discourse with their colleagues all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, we talk about inquiry as something educators talk about inquiry as something where students, you know, ask questions and design an experiment and conduct an experiment and analyze an experiment. But something I've learned over the past couple of years is that you can pick pieces of that out and use them in your classroom. I mean, the NGSS standards and the AP standards, the science standards now have kind of codified, I suppose, <laughs> what those different doings of science look like. Um, but a real shift for me from research to the classroom was that you didn't have to go all the way through that process all the time to build a really robust classroom science program. So, so when people come into my classroom, um, they, they talk to me. And I think one of the points I make in that article is that um, teachers have this knowledge that scientists who want to work with high school students need yeah. in order to design really powerful experiences. Um, so oftentimes somebody will say, hey, I have this idea. Sometimes it fits as um, uh, a kind of enrichment experience for my students, and we have a remediation and enrichment period at my school. It's awesome. Oh, wow. um, and so sometimes somebody will come in and do something there. But when it works in the curriculum, um, we've done all kinds of things. So um, students... Here at IU, a young faculty member named Aaron Newman has this army of undergraduates. And I'm very <laughs> fortunate that a former AP biology student, an AP biohead, is in that lab as an undergrad because the whole troop of undergraduates, this amazing, powerful, diverse group of very young adults, mm -hmm. um, came and talked about neurobiology research and actually had uh, an experience on optical priming for my students. Oh, wow. Like so, optigenetics? Funny, no. Um, uh, different different uh, glasses, prism glasses that oh, shift the vision glasses. with a performance task. Uh-huh. And so what are some things you can do before you start measuring your performance on the performance task um, that can help uh, prime your your nervous system for being able to hit a visual target with a ball. Uh -huh. And that, um, that was born out of me saying, I really want you to come. My students have to do something. They have to do something. And that student, uh, Nathan, really understanding because he had been here, what that doing might look like. Neat. So that is, yeah, is, was, neat. is that, was that with your, so this is bringing researchers or undergrads back into your AP class or, yeah. And so that, yeah, so, and it's neat. So we're talking about students who are like three years older, you know, <clears throat> yep. than the kids that are in your classroom. Uh, I yeah. imagine that also allows them to do some of that visualization of what does it look like to be there you go. an undergrad. And it is the most powerful. It's so powerful when people can see themselves in others who are farther along a path. Um, you know, and for me, you know, we, we talked about kind of, my, my pathway. Around the time I started to look up and look around, um, I, I have great respect for um, the people that were researchers that I interfaced with at Stanford, my PhD advisor, the people on my committee. Um, I, <laughs> I was at a beer hour, so I was at a happy hour <laughs> on a Friday, and two professors in my department were standing um, talking, and I was near them kind of listening in as a friend and I were talking. And they were talking about – they were shooting ideas back and forth about a project that belonged to one of them. And so one of them said, yeah, so I was cooking dinner last night, and I suddenly realized this about your work and said <laughs> whatever the next thing was. And the other one said, yeah, I was in the shower this morning, <laughs> and I was thinking that – and I, in my head, said – why would you waste your perfectly good personal time <laughs> on, on your work? Um, and now that I have found um, a career, uh, a line of work that much closer matches um, the, the ways that come naturally to be in the world, I think about teaching like all the time. <laughs> yep. Like all the time. I think you're probably there with me, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that that, that, stance 
that stance of I'm I'm learning and exploring and making changes and analyzing and doing them again, that's research in a way that might not be recognizable right away to the people who come into my classroom, particularly people who are farther along in their science careers. Here it's often professors. Um, But feel very familiar um, when put into the context of the work that they do. Yeah, and what you're describing is something that I often tell. I, I feel like I try to communicate to this to this to my students, but I don't know that they really they really get it, and I don't blame them for not getting it. But um, I don't know. Like teaching isn't a lot of work for me. I mean, it's a lot of work, but it's something that I'm constantly I'm constantly doing. Like I'm never like burned out on teaching because I I'm just so fueled by the questions I have, the thoughts I have about it. I jokingly say sometimes my hobby is working on my teaching, which, uh, <laughs> and I don't know what work life balance is because like literally this week in my downtime as I'm walking around my house and like it's the middle of the summer and I don't really have to be doing you know anything. I am like really bothered by trying to figure out logistics of this lab that I want to introduce, <laughs> and like I, I find myself like like thinking about. It and then you're like, maybe I'll drive into school and get some stuff. Like, you know, it's those types of things that just keep churning over in my head. The there's so many unsolved problems. But what you're describing is you want your students to ultimately go on and be like happy, fulfilled people. And that's going to yeah. look really, really different. And you want them to be doing things that they are like really enjoying. Um, and that's that's really what those researchers were doing. They couldn't help but think about the research because it was their passion and it was what they wanted to do. And it's the way I view teaching. And I don't expect my kids to all feel that way about teaching. In fact, I expect very few of them to feel that way about teaching. But right. I want whatever they do to fill that same, that same place in their life. So one thing, one charge I would give to teachers who have been doing this for a minute, I think it would probably be pretty hard to do early on in teaching. But for those of us who are kind of in the second act and onward of our teaching careers, um, make that intellectual work public to your students. Mm-hmm. Right? It, yeah. it, you know, you talked about that visual, visualization piece. Um, I, I don't think most of my students should grow up to be classroom teachers, but I want them to see what it looks like for somebody who is in, you know, like a very everyday profession, a very everyday line of work, um, to be doing some intellectual work and, and to be growing, right? Like I, I never, I never, people say their classroom is their laboratory. Um, I didn't understand that until I, until I started teaching. (laughs) <laughs> right. And the neat thing about teaching is that if you teach, even if you don't teach the same content, some things come up again every year. Yeah. Right. So you get to iteratively work on things in a way that, you know, my friends who work in consulting don't always get to do. Right. They're contracted for two weeks. They solve a problem or present something and then it's on to the next thing to investigate. And I have this really deep knowledge that I'm generating about teaching. But the thing, you know, you said that I, I've written a whole bunch, you know, the reason that I, that I, the reason that I recognize that this is true about teaching and not just about science is because I had some really awesome writing coaching. So I have been really fortunate to work in a lot of different parts of my life with people who value writing as a way of knowing, right? And so the output, you know, my resume looks pretty fancy when it comes to things that I've published, but writing, like Joan Didion said, it's the way that I know what's happening. So is that what is that what it is? I mean, writing and publishing is is you know it could fill a lot of different roles. For me, I think of writing as as being just a an opportunity to sit down and reflect and sort of like a almost like a state of the union. Like I've been working on mm-hmm. this thing, I got to sit down and write. But is I guess I want, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, so why are you writing for the American biology teacher and your work with kaleidoscope and educational leadership? Like, how does it fit into your process? Do you, do you get to a point when your work where you're like, I need to sit down and write this down because of where I am in the process I've been doing, or is it reflection at the end or I'm starting a new project. I need to write about it. Where does it fit in for you? Or is it all points in between? I guess. I think it totally depends on the project and my collaborators. So the American biology teacher articles, um, the Knowles teacher initiative 
um, gave me space over five years <laughs> to work with two of my colleagues, uh, Becky Van Tassel, who is now on the other co-editor-in-chief of Kaleidoscope, and Katie Davenport, who now works for the city of Philadelphia. Um, and the three of us were working in different contexts that were tied to biology classrooms. And we developed an activity, and along the way, built it with a lot of developed knowledge about evolution and about pedagogy. Mm. And so for us, that writing process was really a summary of kind of understanding why the thing worked the way it did. Um, And that does not come naturally to me. Um, As part of the AP Biology Leadership Academy, um, in one of those sessions, someone had us take a leadership inventory, you know, a series of questions that they then rank for you, and it comes back and tells you a little bit about your answers. And I... My ability to facilitate other people's collaboration is off the charts. That's something that comes very naturally to me. It is fun for me to do, and I've learned a lot about it, and I keep learning about it. But it's really hard for me, naturally, to articulate why I'm doing what I'm doing. (laughs) Like if you could freeze frame the classroom, I often make decisions that have good outcomes, but when I, when I try to speak about them or think about them, it's all kind of nebulously fuzzy. And so writing forces me to make that clear to myself. Yeah. So the American biology teacher pushed that, that, that set of articles. I had some excellent collaborators, and they really pushed me to think about making a clear, concise argument about why we were structuring the article that way. Um, the educational leadership article, um, Brene Brown talks about stormy first drafts mm-hmm. of stories that we tell ourselves. She uses another word for grownups, but on your <laughs> podcast, I'm going to say stormy first drafts. Um, and those stormy first drafts, I have reams of electrons <laughs> of stormy for- first drafts for that article in educational leadership because the story I was writing about this one student who changed my teaching life trajectory forever, um, the context of that was something that I, although I, I carry some identities that are underprivileged, I have a whole bunch of privilege in my identity. Mm. Um, I had to unpack all of that before I could stand in a place to tell that story. <clears throat> um, and so for me, that educational leadership piece um, came from pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of stormy first drafts mm. about about how the system was broken, about how I wasn't able to help him at first, about, about not understanding the political climate in which my undocumented student was making the totally excellent and rational choices he was making at 14. Um, I didn't understand all of that. And so writing was a way through for me to be able to learn about that. And writing gives you something to share with thinking partners yeah. in a way that a conversation doesn't, right? So one of the things that was awesome in the group of people that I was working with when I was writing um, the piece about my student was that we were all open to critical friendship about Stormy First Draft. <laughs> yeah. So... Well, I will give you the caveat of conversations. You just have to trick people into letting them record you. You know, you can record them when you do it, and then <laughs> you have noted. it, and then you can have that reflective piece. Um, <laughs> noted. You do it. Uh, well, you know, as you were talking about the sort of both of those in terms of the 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 piece about sort of describing what it is you do and why you do it sort of in the moment, it it, it dawned on me that it jumped uh, that that my same reflections happened when I mentored new teachers. Like a new, a new teacher would say, well, like, why do you do this? Or how do you do this? Or I had um, I had a teacher, we have a teacher to teacher system in our school where a teacher from a different department, a teacher actually who I didn't know, um, I, I teach in a school of 2000 students. So mm. um, and we have a, a, you know, an east and a west and a south, you know, like wings of our building. And so I had a Spanish teacher reached out and said, I'd like to come in. It, 
you know, watch your class if I could and do an observation. I was like, okay, I d had never met them before. Um, they teach in lower East wing. I teach in upper West <laughs> wing, like never had interacted with them, but they had heard that I worked on some things from a colleague and they wanted to observe me. And then they asked me afterwards, like, how, like how, why did you do that? And I was like, I have a early career teacher asking me why I do this thing that I just do, you know, right. this is like, and I had to, and I, there were reasons behind it, but you're right. It's hard to express those. And when I've worked with other new teachers, whether they're new AP biology teachers, or I worked in an online mentoring program for years, they would ask, all right, I'm getting ready to do this. How would you do this? And I would answer, you know, this is how I'd approach that. And they'd ask why. And the first couple of years I had really hard time explaining why I did the things I did, Yeah, but they worked. Um, and some of them, I had really good reasons as to why I did them. And some of them, I didn't, some of them, it was just like, this is a habit I have and I don't know why I do it. And maybe I, and I started to reflect back on, do I do things for really good reasons or what are the, what are the things that I do for good reasons versus what are the things I do just because I do them that way? And it made me much more mindful about my practice in general and much more reflective. Um, so, yeah. And for me, it was that that same forcing me to do this, this articulation of the why, mm -hmm. again, like you said, even if it's not a, a, a great why, or even if the thing you're trying to describe is um, there are other better ways to accomplish it. Um, it really helped me think about what school looked like for all my students mm -hmm. and about increasing access for all my students. Because I think all of us as a new teacher, particularly, you know, I moved to a new community with one year of teaching under my belt, um, with a whole new set of social norms and divisions and um, even, even the little things. Like, do you know when you fold a piece of paper the long way and the short way? Mm -hmm. There's a there's a there's a phrase for here. You either fold it like a hot dog or like a hamburger. Okay. That's what the every 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 kid who has lived in Indiana in this part of the world knows what I say when I mean say fold that paper like a hot dog. That is so weird to me. I don't, yeah, I don't know that I ever I don't know that I ever use that phrasing, but I've never I had never heard it before, and I said excuse me, and to a person they were like a hot dog. You fold it the long way like a bun. Um, and that's just a, a small, silly throwaway of the of the wider assumptions and, and cultures that um, that kind of have met each other in my classroom. Um, you know, you were talking about mentoring new to the new to the profession teachers. Mm -hmm. um, one of the neat things that's happened for me professionally in the last year or so is um, having this role at the helm of this incredible um, journal, uh, Kaleidoscope Educator Voices and Perspectives. So uh, one of the things that's come about for me on Kaleidoscope uh, is that my staff and I have this amazing window into the lives of young career teachers, teachers who are, are young in their career. Um, and I worry about my positioning sometimes because there's a doctor in front of my name. And because I have this resume that has a lot of things that I've done on it. And it's one thing for me to say, oh, I'm still learning. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is when you're young in your career and things aren't working, it's, the stakes feel higher than they do if you make a mistake in some other part of your life. Mm. Because we're working with people's children. We're working with people's babies, right? Um, and I, I've been thinking a lot about how we can, particularly in the discourse about either teacher is superhero or a bad teacher, <laughs> you know, how do we build, how do we build people's capacity to look at their practice? And one really awesome thing that's come out of my work this summer with the journal is this realization that helping people see their strengths is really important and something that maybe as a culture of educators, we're not always doing a great enough job for each other. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think also the seeing the strengths, and as you said, like I find that's something I always have a hard time talking about things that I do well. I think there's a cultural block that people individually have, but also the mindset of like, failure's not failure like we make mistakes mm. and we're learning and that that you don't like failing is not an end like oh i i didn't do that thing right it's okay 
Um, I had good intentions going in <laughs> and yeah. now I'm going to make it better. And yep. I think that there's like this cliff approach to failure. Like every time you make a mistake or every time something goes wrong, it is not falling off a cliff. You know, it's <laughs> we're, we're on this journey and we're going to make mistakes and there's got to be space for that to be okay. Um, and I definitely feel that as you age and you develop reputation and you develop a little cachet in your career and students who walk into your room and look at you as an experienced adult, you have that privilege. Like that's just a privilege that I know I have in my classroom that a first year teacher who works in it walks into my building. And when they make a mistake in front of their students, they are under a microscope. And when I make a mistake in front of my students, I can just shake it off and it, and it just rolls. And that's just a complete point of privilege you get when you work into the middle of your career. I'm wondering so you've been doing this 23 years now, yep. right? Yep. Um, do you feel like students are more afraid of failure now than they have been? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I've worked with different populations. And right now I work. I would say that my honors and my AP students, um, I definitely felt that when I transitioned into teaching AP and when I transitioned back to teaching honors, because I taught honors biology early on in my career and then back, um, mm. I became very acutely aware of how students struggled with that. And I would say that there, there are definitely students who are very, very poor at making mistakes and are very risk averse. Um, and mm. I don't know that I have a good enough handle. I, I feel like in the community I teach in, I kind of feel like that's always been the case, that students have always been afraid of making mistakes and they always wanted to get it right and they always wanted to be perfect. Um, and I don't really know if... Now I'm just better aware of it and sure. I feel like I'm working. It's something that I've been acutely aware of much more over the last 10 years and something I've been working towards helping my students with much more over the last 10 years. Um, so I feel like I, I don't know that I, I don't have any data. <laughs> I don't have any data <laughs> on it. And my anecdotes are skewed by by age and perspective and that I don't know. But I, I definitely would say it's not an unfair statement to say there are there's a cohort of students right now that are um, so highly risk averse that it interferes with their learning. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we need to help them with. Um, and that's 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 something that we definitely need to move towards. Yeah. And nobody, nobody who had a successful high school experience and grew up to be an adult who thinks about a successful high school experience, very few of us would have that perspective. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it's a, that, that, and that thing, that piece about we can help our students with it, like, that's the joy of what I do every day. I still have a pretty strong scientist identity. Um, I have a very strong teacher identity. Um, but one thing that the classroom is really letting me do, and this sounds silly, but like my identity as a human, <laughs> as a human participating in humanity, has really grown in the past couple of years as I have developed my capacity for making connections with kids. Hmm. It makes it. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> as weird as it sounds, like I feel like I'm much. I'm much more of a human being now than I was, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, early no. in my career. Teaching teaches you, if you let it, how to be a better human, and those lessons have like bled over into the rest of my life. You know, I have two little people, so yeah. uh, Namora is four and Therian is two, but even before I was parenting actively my own little family. Um, just the, the way that I approached people, the, 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 the things I said to people when we bumped into each other in a public space. I mean, all of those things have changed because my students have taught me about how important those interactions are. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, and I, you know, it's one of those things where you get a message from a kid and like the way I my the way my students have taught me how to interact with them has colored the way I interact with everybody. Right. Um, and you're absolutely right that um, 
I, I, I should say this. I, I hope I'm a better human being than I was 15 years ago. I think I think I, I think I am. Uh, but I certainly uh, like my students need to grow in their ability to handle risk. I'm sure I have a lot of areas to grow in that and those <laughs> being a human and being, well, you know. Yeah, this is one of those greeting card things that yeah. I did not really understand until recently. Like yeah. we are all supposed to be growing. How uninteresting it would be if we were done. Yeah. And I remember looking at that and being like, whatever. <laughs> that is not an appropriate uh, appropriate outlook on the world. And I'm finding more and more that um, how uninteresting if we had it all figured out, how uninteresting that would be if there wasn't something to work on, to chew on, something that we were in the middle of. So. All right. Well, I'm going to try to transition us through the end where we could, this is easily one of those that we could have a four hour conversation <laughs> and I could, I could just release you for the rest of it, but you actually going to have to get back to class soon. So uh, I do. They are, they are eating lunch and on their way. Yeah. So uh, let's quickly go through a couple of these things. Um, what are you looking forward to in the, the upcoming years in your classroom? I am interested in thinking about ways to increase representation in my classroom. And I mean that in several contexts. Um, my district has been doing a lot of really awesome, powerful work about identity and diversity and equity and representation. Mm -hmm. And um, I also, so I, I am... I am part of that as we work through that as a district. But I'm also thinking about the stories we tell in AP Bio mm -hmm. and in Earth and Space Science. How can I position it so that my students can see, for example, for 30, se for 30 se seconds or something, a picture of somebody who's doing this work um, who it might look like them in some way so they could have that visualization connection we talked about. Um, it's also true that um, there are lots of stories that I'm uncovering um, that fit right into AP Bio that are directly challenging things I thought I knew. Um, for example, we laud Edward Jenner with discovering um, <laughs> smallpox vaccination, but communities in Africa have been practicing that for hundreds of years. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So no, I've been reading um, Stamped from the Beginning, which is a history of racism in America. And although this is not the author's intent, um, I keep finding pieces to take back about evolution, for example, and um, this story about inoculation. Um, in that book, Stamped from the Beginning, um, the author uh, describes how enslaved people in Philadelphia were trying to tell white people about this cultural practice in their communities um, when a smallpox uh, uh, plague hit, when a smallpox epidemic hit Philadelphia, and no one would listen. I mean, they listened, but nobody, nobody started that practice at that time. So what, where are places like that where I can open the curriculum um, to show that knowledge is held by a lot of different people in a lot of different contexts, and that power is held by a lot of different people in a lot of different contexts? Mm -hmm. You know, whether we're talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, space exploration and, you know, how can I use NASA materials and resources and the, the things that they've built to show people a diverse set of scientists um, to talking about climate change and human subject research. I mean, there's, there's so many places where I feel like I can flip the narrative to give more people, more different types of people power. And that is a thing I'm really looking forward to working on. Wow. Yeah. And as somebody who, you know, uh, the epitome of middle-aged white guy privilege in New England, it's it's something that I've thought about a lot when I bring in, you know, we talk about bringing in researchers or setting up job shadows. It is something that I I had a, a you know, dawning on me moment when I was working on setting up job shadows um, that a lot of my job shadows were not setting up diverse opportunities for kids to see themselves in those areas um, because, you know, my network was my network. There were a lot of people who were like me and making sure that when I set my students up to go and visit labs or go and do that thing, that they got the opportunity to meet and talk to diverse people um, and see science being done by everybody, not just, you know, people who look like their teacher. Um, right. And it's something that I've become aware of. But the historical perspective is also an interesting one that, um, yeah, it's something that I have, I've thought quite a bit about. I think we do a decent area personally in highlighting, you know, Rosalind Franklin, for example, and other examples of um, 
you know, the inequities that existed in voice over time. But there's yeah. certainly a lot more that we could do to talk about voice and how um, very few voices got to break through um, throughout history. That's right. Yeah. So neat, neat perspective. I'll have to, it's something that I will, I, it's something I continually reflect on um, and and something that's good to get a nice reminder of because there are definitely, I know there's more areas I can, I can improve there. All right. Which is okay. Yeah, no, it's, that's why we're learning. We're growing. Yeah. No, I don't say it from a, a point of like, oh, no, I feel I terrible don't. about it. It's definitely just, uh, it's good to, it's good to hear that because it's like, yes, uh, that, yes, that's work I'm still working on. <laughs> yep. Um, so uh, when you're not teaching, what do you, what do you like to do? What fills your life? I love, love, love our local YMCA. Despite the fact that I'm not terribly young, I am not male, I, I am not Christian, like there are all these things that don't apply to me, but the YMCA in our town is the, the heart of my community outside school. Mm-hmm. And so I love to exercise, I love connecting with people. Um, the YMCA has drop-in child care, mm-hmm. and many of the people who work at drop-in child care are my former students. <laughs> And I just the the YMCA is where um, people come if they are helping people with extraordinary needs. It's where older people come to exercise. I just it feels really valuable to me that my family has this third space that's not home or schools for us. Uh, where we get to build a community. So if I'm not at school. And I'm not at the Y. <laughs> I'm often at the Y. There's a there's a pool there. It is yeah. great. Um, I am often uh, I'm often reading or writing. Uh, I work on the journal in a lot of different interesting ways. Um, I coach writers through that process, which is pretty great. Um, I'm often covering childcare for my spouse, who is the primary parent of our family, while he goes to teach in our local jail. And so we shuttle our children around so he can make that part of his life happen. Um, We love to be outside. We love to make music. And one thing I have started to do a little bit more of that is not part of my my life historically is I'm working on drawing and sketching. Wow. Um, I ended up with a very fixed mindset about (laughs) about drawing um, very early in elementary school. And I am discovering the pleasure of it. So as my kids are drawing and painting, I too am finding myself sketching. And there's always something interesting to come out of them. There's yeah. always something interesting. Most of it might feel uncomfortably disre- disrepresentative, <laughs> um, but there's always something that comes out of it where I say, oh, I hadn't seen it that way. So. Yeah, I feel probably equally guilty of a uh, fixed mindset about my artistic ability. Um <laughs> <laughs> I I definitely, as you said that, I was like, yep, guilty. Right. Um, we all laugh uncomfortably, right? Yeah. Which is ridiculous because I, I, I have built this deep cushiony space in my classroom <laughs> yeah. um, for encouraging growth mindset at everything and yeah. to find places where I'm not making the, those <laughs> same assumptions about myself and not giving myself that same kindness of cushioning time um, is interesting. So, uh, and this one fits in well with what we're doing in our life. My husband and I are vegan and we're raising a vegan family. So the other thing you might find me doing is writing a monthly food column for the newspaper um, with my spouse, thus fulfilling a lifelong dream of writing for a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yep. Yeah, I might have come across one or two of those articles. Um, <laughs> something it's about so toxic, well, taco meat substitutes. Right, we have young children, and yeah. our house is a mess. Um, but the children are doing okay. Yeah. Um, and we we teach, but we teach very different things in very different contexts. Yeah. So the food articles are something that we really do collaborate on. Nice. And it's interesting to collaborate with him on something that has a very outward facing component to it that is not our children. So it's been interesting. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah. All right. Before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? No, I, um, <laughs> I'm so grateful that you have taken the time throughout this to share a little bit of where you're coming from, because I think especially for those of us who are in the beginning of the middle, I guess, <laughs> um, it's really neat to hear 
the stances that people who've been doing it for a little longer take. And so I appreciated that from you throughout this. Yeah, I, I think I'm like, I, I think I'm at the end of the middle. Um, <laughs> as I've been talking to people, it's like, wow, I've been doing this a long time. And uh, I was talking to a, on my last podcast, somebody who said they looked around and they were talking to somebody that they worked in their office and they're like, oh, we're the old people here now. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I definitely have that feeling now that, you know, um, I'm not old, but man, I've been I've been there a long time. I mean, I've been in my current building for 18 years. This is going to be year 19 that I'm starting, and I've been mm. teaching. This is going to be year 23 that I'm starting, and it's uh, it's I've been doing this a long time. And um, like I said I I've said it a lot of the last five years in particular, but I'm having more fun doing this now than I've ever had, um, and uh. I'm learning more than I ever have before. And like I do, I definitely feel like there's like this renaissance that sort of happened. Um, and I don't know what shifted for you. I don't like what, what's the germination of that? I, I don't know. I don't a hundred percent know what happened, but I mean, it was sort of a series of, you know, I definitely got, went through a period where I was stuck and I was struggling. Um, and I didn't have a network and I didn't, I was like hitting the same problems and I wasn't solving it and I didn't have the network and I wasn't accessing the network. I shouldn't say I didn't have the network. I wasn't accessing the supports around me and that mm. through working with a variety of different people in a variety of different settings, whether it was mentoring or whether it was developing better relationships with my colleagues in school, or whether it was reaching out and developing networks with people who teach in other schools around the country. Um, it just was a series of things where, and I've even had my colleagues say that like, yeah, I like really, am, I had a friend of mine say, you know, a couple of years ago, it's like, you're really coming into your own. It's like, I've been doing this for 20 uh. years. Like I shouldn't really feel like I'm coming into my own, but it did. It was this, uh, a series of, um, it was definitely getting frustrated and stuck and then working through it and yeah. maturing and growing and getting to a place. And then, you know, being very open, um, very much taking in a lot of probably taking on a too, too many things, like too many different projects and that sort of thing. And then getting to a point where I started saying no to things um, and then making priorities. And as I said, I, I've been very, very lucky in my career uh, with the people I've worked with and the opportunities I've had. But I'm having a ball right now. And um, as, as much as I vented the, the opening here that like my schedule is going to be a uh, – tiring whirlwind to finish my day every day. I'm really looking forward to several of the things we're going to do in the upcoming school year. So, Dr. Milks prescribes new sneakers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's my prescription for you about uh, that situation. I was like, and maybe the Heelys, the ones that I can roll through the hallways really fast to get to get from one wing oh, to the other. Oh, man. That's a video morning announcement in <laughs> yeah. the process. Yeah. All right. So, so I think we have just enough time to squeeze in picks of the episode. Kirsten, what's your pick? So I don't know how to pronounce her name because I've only read about her. So I apologize if this isn't how you pronounce her name. My hair is on fire about a book called Troublemakers that was published recently by Carla Shalaby. Okay. Troublemakers should be required reading <laughs> for teachers right. and anybody who intersects with education. It is the story of four elementary school students who are seen as troublemakers. But Carla's work in being with them at school, visiting with their families, and doing what they call portraiture, which is kind of strength-based analysis of what happens to students and with students and what students do in classroom settings, she repositions these troublemaking behaviors to tell us and teach us that those troublemakers are canaries in the coal mine. And so as these troublemakers start, you know, making, making trouble and, and, and making things difficult, what they're really doing is warning us that the assumptions that we're making as teachers are incorrect or that things that are happening in our culture are at odds to the health and well-being of these students. Um, I learned about it. I should say I learned about it through Clear the Air, um, which is Val Brown's Twitter campaign for people to read books that directly intersect education and equity. And I strongly suggest it. Yeah, it looks like a very neat book here as I'm looking at the uh, at the different background description. Yeah, it looks like I guess it's sort of that reframing that we talked about earlier about, yeah. you know, like. How do you look at how do you look at a kid and do you look at a kid as just this kid who is in front of you doing this thing right at this moment um, 
or do you view it differently? Um, yeah, and I will warn teachers listening who are interested in reading, and you should read it, that there will be times where you see a terrible teacher move by a very well-meaning teacher and find yourself in, in that teacher's shoes. Yeah. So um, the reflection process was very painful, but in a really good way. And I think people will walk away being inspired to address the assumptions they're making about their students and their behavior. It's great. And even though they're in first grade, um, the lessons for high school are miles deep. So Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, my pick is something I came across a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's called, uh, and I just actually fixed the link here, so it'll, it'll now oh, work. Cool. Uh, it's uh, the new NGSS Classroom, a curriculum framework for project-based science learning. And I don't think this is going to be super relevatory for, for most people who've been working for it, but there were a couple things in this article that jumped out at me. Um, it's like a five-page article, but there's two things that jumped out at me. One was um, they did a classroom one and a classroom two, um, what you hear teachers say, and it contrasts very subtly the language of sort of that NGSS, the student as the worker um, activity um, versus sort of the traditional classroom. And it would be a good active classroom, but there's a subtle difference. Um, classroom one, uh, who can tell me the three ways that heat can be transferred between two objects? Whereas classroom two is, how do we design a device that can bake cookies using only the sun's energy? And mm. it's it. there's like some subtle languages thing here that made me reflect a little bit about, well, the fact is I'm I'm both classroom one and classroom two. I, I, use, right. I use both As of those words. As we all are. Um, at the As different are we points. All. But it, it struck me a little bit in terms of my journey of how much of the classroom two am I bringing out? How regularly am I bringing it out? Where am I bringing it out? Is it the beginning of my lesson or the end? So I think a lot of the classroom one stuff would be awesome at the end, like as a little check-in. Like all right, we did this thing. You should be able to do this thing or you should be able to tell me these things. Um, and I thought it was some really interesting language and it was a good language to reflect on. And then the other thing that came out in the end is they talked about uh, criteria for evaluating um, NGSS aligned curriculum and they talked uh, about five points, um, alignment, relevance, uh, learning opportunities, opportunities for feedback and revision and assessment. And for me, it was like, again, that really good reflective piece to think about where am I in the journey on those various pieces. Um, personally, I feel like I've been really struggling with assessment, um, marrying yeah. what I think my students expect for assessment, what my colleagues expect for assessment, what I expect for assessment, and then what's valuable assessment. And I, there's like a middle space where I think all of those come together. And the feedback piece and those types of things. And reading this actually was it made me feel good. It made me feel like, oh, I'm better. I'm further along this journey than I, I thought. Or, um, it, it, But it also gave me some points to reflect on things that I, maybe I thought I was better at. Like, how good is my alignment? Um, how, how Where am I on this journey? And so I thought it was a, a really nice piece, especially as we're getting back into the school year. Um, it's something that if I had read you know, f four years ago, I would have been like, what is this NGSS mess? I don't know what any of this means. Um, so to read a sort of a foundational descriptive article about NGSS sort of was a nice check-in for where am I in this journey of making my classroom more active. That's neat. You know, that's something that I too am in the middle. We're all in the middle of all the things, right? <laughs> yeah. But like in specific, those, those performance assessments and, and calling out engineering when you see it. Yeah. Right. And calling out prototyping when, when there's prototyping, that's something that I um, went through this summer and looked at my curriculum to find places to do. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Neat. Well, Kirsten, thank you so much for, for joining me. Uh, really quickly, my credits. Um, supporters can go to patreon.com slash lots and support this episode. And supporters get invited into a Slack community where I post things and John Darko and occasionally Kanofke, uh post things. I also post up early um, audio for my episodes up there. I've been doing a much better job there. And we have some other side discussions, although it's been pretty quiet this summer. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. You can also get show notes at lifeoftheschool.com org as well as on my patreon page you can follow me on twitter at mr matthew tweets or at life of the school you can also follow kirsten at dr milks on twitter if you'd like to follow her so thank you again for joining me and i will talk to everybody soon what a pleasure thank you 